Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the years between the financial crisis and now, the Federal Reserve has come to play an outsized role in the functioning of not just the U.S. economy, but global markets. For almost 15 years, the Fed kept interest rates low and just plowed money into the financial system. The scale of the Fed's interventions in the world dwarfed nearly every governmental force outside the Chinese Communist Party. And yet here in our democracy, the Fed lies outside our democratic institutions, making decisions according to its own technocratic principles. A new frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, questions the wisdom of the Fed and whether we're headed for a long period of brutal adjustment to the end of easy money. We talk to the journalists behind it after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The new PBS Frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, traces how the Federal Reserve's unprecedented monetary experiment has both helped and hurt the American economy. Beginning in 2008, the Federal Reserve stepped in to prop up a banking system on the verge of collapse. In the years that followed, with low interest rates and massive infusions of cash into the system, the Fed enabled a bull stock market and bubbles in the housing, financial, and technology markets. But now, three years after its efforts to keep the economy afloat again during the pandemic, it seems tougher times are ahead. Here's Nuriel Rabini's summary of where we're at from the documentary. The party is over. Inflation is high as rising. Central banks have to increase interest rates. That is bursting the asset bubble, is increasing the amount of the debt servicing of everybody overborrowed like crazy. So we lived in a bubble, in a dream, and this dream and a bubble is bursting and is turning into an economic and a financial nightmare. So keep in mind, Rubini's nickname is Dr. Doom. But here to discuss how we got to this complicated point, who should share in the blame and what to expect going forward. We've got the journalist behind the new documentary. James Jacoby is the director and the producer of the film. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Previous films include Amazon Empire and The Facebook Dilemma. Welcome, James. Thanks for having us. We've also got Anya Borg, a producer and writer on this film. She's also worked on The Facebook Dilemma and, like Jacoby, before she was at Frontline, she was at 60 Minutes. Welcome, Anya. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having us. So, James, uh, let's start with you. Your documentary really could not be more timely with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the faltering of First Republic. So when you first heard about the trouble at Silicon Valley Bank, what were you thinking? Um, it was... Uh 
well, I was thinking, how are we going to incorporate this? I mean, Anya and I were, <laughs> Anya and I were, it was, we were basically, what, two days out from air, Anya? I think, I think four days, but we were trying to lock the film <laughs> a day yeah. before air. So it was it was pretty wild. And it was, you know, it was that sort of weird, uh, weird karma of you don't want things to go wrong. But um, this certainly made what we'd been doing for the past two years really relevant all of a sudden in that we were starting to see all these disruptions in our banking system and sort of the the the, the effects of what it means for the Fed to kind of pull back on this decade long experiment with easy money. And um, and so, I mean, we basically just kind of kicked into gear and decided, all right, let's open up the film, um, even though we're a couple of days out from air, and let's, um, you know, let's incorporate this news in it. And that really, that decision kind of came about once it became clear that the Fed was actually going to step in to take action, and it took emergency measures to obviously shore up the banking system once um, Silicon Valley Bank coll- collapsed there. Yeah. Anya, you know, overall, the through line of the documentary is that the Fed pumped too much money at rates that were too low for too long, which created a variety of these asset bubbles across the world, but in particular here in the Bay Area. So uh, how does Silicon Valley Bank reflect the Fed strategy in in these kind of key ways? Well, there's a couple uh, a couple components. I think one was that we kind of went back and looked at how the Fed's policy of pumping all of this money into the financial system and keeping rates low for so long had um, forced investors, institutional investors, to kind of go further out on the risk curve. Mm. Um, And so a lot of money had been plowed into the private markets, private equity, venture capital, um, and into tech um, over the decade after the great financial crisis. Um, and so as the Fed has changed course, it seemed, you know, that you've seen the, the tide coming out, as people call it, a war, famous Warren Buffett quote. And a lot of that money um, that investors had been plowing into the venture capital and tech world um, is kind of receding. Um, so I think that was part of what happened at Silicon Valley Bank is that you had depositors and tech companies who suddenly could no longer depend on the constant influx of investment and had to draw down on their deposits. Um, But then the other trend that we explored in the documentary a little bit was the kind of deregulatory policies that had um, evolved after Dodd-Frank and the fact that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank in particular um, had lobbied to not have to have capital requirements um, and to meet other regulatory thresholds. So those kind of combined in this perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, James, do you want to add anything to that about you know the the relationship between that bank collapse and the kind of phenomena that you're examining in this doc? Yeah, no, I, th- I think Anya put it perfectly. It is <clears throat> it is the tide going out, and um, and you know VC was a huge beneficiary of this easy money era. Uh, you had you know pension funds looking for places to invest because they couldn't invest in safe things and make a return when interest rates are so low. So they looked for riskier places to put it. And VC had a great pitch. Um, you know, they, and, and so all this investment money flooded into the Bay Area um, and it was looking for places to go. And I think anyone, I mean, whenever I visited Anya out there, you can almost immediately see kind of the odd excesses of, of, of tech culture. <laughs> and um, and you know there you know we didn't really get a chance to delve too deeply into it in the film but you know there was we interviewed uh Charles Duhigg um for the film who's who's written for the New Yorker on on kind of the 
how how VC has in some ways is a, a distorted or perverted form of capitalism, in part because, you know, there's all this misallocation of huge amounts of resources to ideas that just kind of had no reason to really mm -hmm. live or exist. And that was very emblematic of this age of easy money, where you saw huge amounts of capital being deployed for ideas that really either had no chance of ever turning a profit or were just basically stupid um, and and got huge amounts of funding. So I think, you know, one of the big takeaways of, of doing this reporting uh, for Anya and me has been, I think, this idea of a misallocation of resources. Mm. Obviously, there's been a ton of innovation and really amazing work done in this in this era in in tech and, and elsewhere. But there was also, you know, a lot of waste and um, and, you know, ideas that uh, you know, that shouldn't have been funded, yeah. funded. So let's go back to trace how we got here. I mean, 2008, the financial system centered in the kind of Anglo-American world just stopped working. You know, you got these toxic assets in the form of collateralized debt obligations that are just wreaking havoc and banks stop lending. So into this situation steps the Fed under Ben uh, Bernanke, and they begin this fairly radical policy project called quantitative easing, which might be giving some of our listeners acid flashbacks. But refresh us, though. Like, what is that and how does it work? Are you taking that one on you? No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you. Yeah, quantitative easing. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's like acid flashback meets PTSD for us. Um, it's the, 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 the quantitative easing was this um, experimental tool whereby the Fed can control short-term interest rates. That's what it, its normal kind of course of business. That's what it does. And that's essentially lending to the big banks. And they, you know, they control the rate at which they lend to the big banks. And then the big banks lend to the rest of the economy. The Fed needed a tool at that point in time during the financial crisis to be able to get more and more money out into the system, into the banking system. And they came, they didn't come up with this idea. The idea had existed, but Bernanke sort of took it off the shelf and said, all right, we got to do this. Um, and really what it was, was an emergency measure at first to, for the Fed to use its power to print money and create money to buy all sorts of assets from the banks that it wasn't typically buying, you know, um, treasury securities or mortgage-backed securities, and essentially using the power of its printing press to to buy assets from the banks and flood them with money. And the, the initial intent of it was, of course, to it's it's called credit easing. It was meant to enable you know enable the banks to get back on their feet and to start lending to the broader economy but it didn't really work out that way um it the banks and the, you know much to the consternation of the general public the banks in the wake of the financial crisis were not really lending um it generated a huge amount of anger and um and in in part when they started paying themselves record bonuses but there was just extraordinary you know trillions of dollars of 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 injections injections of money into the financial system. And, you know, what happened over time, and the film gets into this, is that kind of evolved, you know, from an emergency measure to essentially the status quo for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, successive rounds of this for all sorts of reasons, political reasons, um, you know, also because in some ways it had effects. And one of the things that we get into is this idea of a wealth effect. And that's actually a term that was used. It was used by, by, by Bernanke and others, which is that what they they didn't know quite what how quantitative easing would affect things, but one thing was for sure that when when you lower long term interest rates, which essentially quantitative easing does at the end of the day, 
um, when you buy up all these assets from the banks that are essentially safe assets, and the Fed takes them out of the market, then people are going to look to uh, for risk, and they're going to go into riskier things like the stock market. And so that's exactly what happened. Investors around the world and all that glut, that giant pool of money out there started looking for returns, flooded into places like the stock market. And guess what? You know, asset prices went up, stock yeah. prices, bond prices, real estate prices. And that was intentional. That was an, a, what they called a wealth effect. We have an amazing uh, cut from Andrew uh, Hussar, who was one of the guys charged with executing this QE plan. Let's, uh, let's listen in. The Fed's idea was the banks would be taking that money and, and, and lending it effectively at lower interest rates. What the banks were doing instead was that they were just investing in the same bonds that the Fed was buying. They were taking that money and they were turning around and buying the same mortgage-backed securities and other bonds. Why? Because the Fed had made very clear that its goal was to drive up the price of financial assets. And so Wall Street turned around and thought, why would I go through the effort of making a mortgage when I can just press a button and buy, you know, millions, if not billions, of dollars of, of bonds and, and ride that trade as the price of those, those assets are very consciously being inflated by the Fed. That was uh, Andrew Hussar talking in the film Age of Easy Money. That's a new frontline documentary which explains how the policies instituted by the Federal Reserve in response to the 2008 financial crisis have sort of begun to sow some economic discord uh, that we're seeing today. We're joined by the creators of that documentary, James Jacoby, the director and producer of the film, as well as Anya Borg, producer and writer on the film. They uh, earlier worked on the Facebook Dilemma together, another uh, PBS Frontline documentary. We'd love to hear from you. What are your concerns about rising inflation and the moves in interest rates? What plans have you made for any possible upheaval in the financial markets? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by the creators of a new PBS Frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, Anya Borg, producer and writer on the film, and James Jacoby, director and producer of Age of Easy Money, which you can watch you know, on, on PBS. It's there and free for all. Um, 
Anya, I wanted to ask you about the second moment after the financial crisis, which you identify in the documentary. That's not really in the in the middle of the crisis, as most people understand the financial crisis. It actually comes in the 2010 midterms. After this kind of uneven recovery, you know, we've had Occupy Wall Street, we've had the Tea Party. Then you have the 2010 midterms, brutal for the Obama administration, the Democrats. And the Fed actually responded to that. Walk us through why that moment is so pivotal, you think, in the history of the country. Sure. So, you know, after the great financial crisis, the, the recession was quite deep and quite prolonged. Um, and Obama had passed an $800 billion stimulus bill, I think, in 2009. Um, and so there was a lot of hope that Congress would do more to kind of, you know, uh, stimulate economic growth, help push and catapult the country out of this deep recession. Um, but then the Tea Party's rise to prominence um, in the 2010 uh, midterm elections you know, part of the Tea Party platform was really about no more bailouts, no more government spending, that we had kind of gone overboard on spending. Um, and so it becomes clear that Congress is going to have a really hard time passing more stimulus. Um, so one of the moments that we explore in the film is that the day after the 2010 midterms, the Fed wound up passing additional quantitative easing, what was called QE2. And a lot of the people that we interviewed for the film really saw that as an, a really symbolic and important moment, that QE1 was an emergency measure meant to shore up the banks during a financial crisis. QE2 was when the Fed kind of began to play a different role in the economy. Um, in the absence of, um, of Congress, that the Fed was sort of felt that it was the only game in town and that they had to do whatever they could to continue to stimulate economic growth. It's really, it's interesting. It's like one of those moments where you realize like, oh, the Fed is actually responding not just to the economy, but also to the weakness of our democratic institutions in, in directing, uh, you know, economic activity. Um, you know, James, one of the big arguments in the film, and you've, you've touched on it a little bit already, is that kind of flushing money through the system, through the mechanisms that the Fed has used, has created kind of perverse incentives for a whole bunch of different kinds of businesses, not to invest in new productive capacity or product launches, but just to kind of play this financial game. And not just financial companies, but also regular old, you know, companies that are supposed to be making real stuff that people buy in stores. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's look, it, what, what we kept finding over and over is that this this monetary experiment was it just sort of accelerating all these trends that already were happening in the U.S. economy, and you know one of the main ones being kind of the financialization of everything, and you know for instance, you know big pub public companies were, you know they did what they were expected to do given the fact that rates were low. They they borrowed a lot of money. Um, they've taken on huge amounts, historic amounts of debt, in order to what you know. The Fed had hoped they'd kind of invest in infrastructure, maybe give some pay pay raises or hire more workers, um, invest in research and development to create the next new thing. But a lot of that borrowed money went into share buybacks, you know, essentially kind of um, legal stock manipulation of boosting share prices and, and pleasing shareholders. So it was... You know, it's it's a strange thing because the Fed really doesn't have any control over that per se, but they were creating the conditions for a lot of these trends that we already were seeing in the American economy to kind of go into to overdrive. 
and um, you know the, the the buybacks and the and the you know that's obviously been a political hot button issue. Um, but I mean the corporate debt issue is in, is is massive, and it's one I think we're going to hear a lot more about in the coming months, if not years, um, because. Corporate America borrowed a huge amount of money, and we have about, I think, 20 or 25 percent of our public corporations are so-called zombie companies that essentially just borrowed at low rates in order to keep themselves going and essentially existed because of easy money. And now that rates are higher, those those companies, including some tech companies, major tech companies are actually classified as zombies. Those those companies are going to face major, major hardship if your rates continue to either rise or stay at this level. Hmm. You know, Anya, in the documentary, you have someone who's sitting on the the Fed board, um, Neil Kashkari, and he basically argues like, this isn't really our job. We have incomplete, I think is how he puts it, you know, financial regulations that allowed this sort of thing um, to happen. I mean, he's kind of right about that, isn't he? He is right. Um, and I, I think first off, I just want to say, you know, hats off to Neil Kashkari for sitting down for two hour and a half long interviews with us. Um, we we asked for interviews with every, you know, the with the board of governors, with the chairman Powell, and, and really appreciated that uh, President Kashkari was willing to kind of speak on behalf of the Fed in our film. Um, you know, when he was talking about the failure of regulatory policy there, it was after uh, COVID. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that the questions that, w- that were being asked were sort of, you know, that we had to step in during COVID because of so many things that had gone wrong, um, particularly in what's called the shadow banking sector. So after Dodd-Frank in 2010 came in to regulate the banks, there there was a lot of capital that flooded to outside of the traditional banking sector to what's co- co- often known as the shadow banking sector, which are asset managers, hedge funds, um, who do a tremendous amount of lending now in the current financial system, and that there's a lot of risk there and very little regulation. So I think specifically he was kind of referring to mm-hmm. the lack of, of regulation that exists mm-hmm. um, in, in that shadow banking sector. But you know, as we've just seen with Silicon Valley Bank, there are regulatory um, failures and absences uh, that, that need to be addressed at kind of every level, I, I would say. Yeah. You know, James, I wanted to ask you about this sort of COVID moment, in part because we it seemed like we were going to have a time where there would be quantitative tightening. And in fact, you know, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, tried to do that um, before Donald Trump kind of seemed to scare him off from <laughs> continuing down that road. But it kind of landed us at this spot where instead of the moment exactly when you think we'd get to a new status quo of this tightening, instead the Fed went the exact opposite direction, right? Yeah, it was a, it's, it's kind of crazy chronologically to think about it because it, it's, it's exactly as you, you said. I mean, right before COVID hits, the Fed is trying to pull back. Um, Powell, an interesting character, you know, he, he had been in favor of pulling back for quite a while and, and was very much aware of some of the perverse side effects of, of easy money policies that, you know, corporate debt issue was on his mind. Um, the shadow banks, as Anya was just talking about, that was on his radar as well. Um, the issues that were kind of growing and the, and the risks in the financial system. Um, however, he was a proponent of various deregulatory measures. Um, you know, before COVID hit. And what happens is, um, yes, he gets he gets sort of browbeaten by the markets and Trump 
um, as he tries to pull back on this in, in 2018, 2019. And then what happens is COVID hits and all of the fragilities that sort of existed in the financial system, both the, the, the issues that, that had been unresolved post-2008 with shadow banks and other you know, risk takers that weren't necessarily regulated. But I mean, it was an unprecedented shock. I mean, we, we our economy and the financial markets just go into a, a, a you know, free fall, a free yeah. fall and a, and a coma. And so, you know, the Fed, that is its role. It is the lender of last resort. It is there to help the financial system function in the midst of a crisis. And it steps in on this unprecedented scale, even unprecedented compared to what it had done in 2008. And um, and so, you know, one of the interesting things is, is, I mean, it did it did a phenomenal job. We avoided a great, you know, depression or or, or something terrible. Um, but what it really did was, again, kind of not only just kick the can down the road and the kind of reckoning with what had been building, but it also it 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 masked some of what had been papered over all these problems and in fact accelerated some of the trends that were that were already supercharged before covid so when we just talked about you know corporate debt and 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 all sorts of things that make our system more filled with debt and leverage and risk all that behavior just got worse after COVID, after the Fed essentially steps in and saves not just the banking system, not just the shadow banking system, but essentially says, we're going to, we're actually going to, we're willing to buy corporate debt if, corp if corporations weren't able to kind of meet their payments during that period of time. So they really put a floor under the American economy, all the, all the major financial players and, and corporations. Hmm. We're talking about the new frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, which examines the Federal Reserve's policy responses over the last 15 years and how those have kind of remade the American economy. We're joined by James Jacoby, the director and producer of the film, and Anya Borg, producer and writer of the film. Love to hear from you. What are your concerns about rising inflation and what's happening with interest rates right now? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or KQED Forum. Anya, I mean, we are getting to the point in this narrative arc where inflation enters the picture. So the Fed has been doing all these things, pumping all this money, but inflation has stayed quite low. Um, and then we start to see inflation rise like quite rapidly. And I would say in your documentary, you lay this pretty firmly at the feet of the Fed. Yeah, I mean, I think people sort of place where we began to see inflation uh, at different points. One of the things that we examine is how in the wake of the response to COVID, you did see a lot of what's called asset price inflation. So you saw the stock market going up, the bond markets going up, speculative assets going up, like crypto. Um, and some people have sort of, you know, point to that as as the beginnings. Um, but when when the way the Fed measures inflation, the, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, really began, I think, to show uh, in the spring of 2021. Um, and, you know, from, from our interview with Neil Kashkari and other members of the Fed who've talked about this, they initially thought that it was what they called transitory, meaning that they thought that they were um, largely supply shock, supply side issues that would kind of, you know, how supply chains got all gummed up and that they would kind of ungum themselves in time and that it wasn't real inflation that was going to be what they call sticky. Um, and so what a number of people who have sort of been more critical of the Fed have, have felt that it took the Fed too long 
to really um, see how inflation was taking hold and to do something to try to address it, namely raising rates. You know, it's interesting, uh, James, at the time, you know, we did shows about inflation, looking into it, and it did feel like there were legitimate crosswinds about what was happening. You know, we knew that like a big chunk of inflation was coming from cars, which was related to this supply constraint on transistors. We knew that the price of transportation was up for these different factors in the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, and that there was this corporate profiteering was a piece of it. There's the mm-hmm. war in Ukraine mm-hmm. pushing mm-hmm. up fossil fuel prices like was it fair to for them to say, well, we don't know <laughs> if this is uh, transitory or not inflation, so we'll just keep rates where they are? Yeah, of course it's fair. I think that there, I mean, I, I, I just, I think that something happened there where it was, um, you know, they were playing it safe, I guess. I think they were thinking that, you know, transitory and that analysis of it was, was sort of the safer bet and that this was not a time as the economy was starting to recover from the COVID shock. This was not necessarily the time to pull back on all of this aid, all of this, you know, the the, the low rates and quantitative easing. Um, But, you know, there's a certain kind of myopic uh, viewpoint there, which is, of course, we know that that there's not much the Fed can do about, for instance, corporations, you know, being greedy and and and, um, you know, some of the supply shocks that hit the economy. However, they do they do their interest rate is the tool that controls demand in the economy. It really is. It's the main tool to do that. And they they didn't they didn't really flinch. Uh, they, they just kept going really hard, really hot for really long. And there was no pullback. There was, you know, they, they started to signal that they would, and they consider that a tool of theirs. They call it forward guidance. But there was really no appreciable f- pullback for a long period of time as they were getting more inputs that were saying to them, this may be stickier than we think. This may be more, not, this may not be transitory. And, um, you know, so it was a whole combination of things. It was also the fact that the federal government, which had already done trillions of dollars of, of, of aid and stimulus during the Trump administration, the Biden administration comes in, does another basically $2 trillion with the, with the Rescue Act. There were questions and very legitimate questions about whether all of that money going out, both from the Fed and the federal government, was going to be inflationary in an environment where we had all these supply problems. And so it's it's, you know, I think We'll look back on this and and historians will judge it and other people will judge it. But I think it is fair to say that, um, and I mean, Neil Kashkari admitted as much. If he knew now what he knew then, he would have done things differently. Mm. Um, Let's get to some callers. We're going to take a bunch in through the end of the show. Paul in San Francisco, you're first up. Welcome. Yes, uh, I, I only was able to watch an hour of the show, uh, your documentary, and I had two comments. Uh, I was all interested in using the pejorative, you using the pejorative of an experiment for the low interest rates, but never using it as an ex- it's experiment when, when rates go up. And the other one is, uh, at least in the hour that I show, you never make a distinction between monetary policy and fiscal policy, making it seem to um, most watchers that all the problems for the economy are due to Fed's actions, not lack of action by uh, the executive and Congress. That's it. Hey, Paul, thank you so much for that uh, comment. Um, Why why don't you take that one on? You want to take it, James? 
Uh, sure. I mean, first of all, I do think that we we do distinguish between fiscal policy um, and and Fed policy. We really made a very big point to do that, um, especially in sort of the, the part of the film we were talking about earlier with the with the Tea Party coming to you know power in Congress and basically scuttling any effort by fiscal policymakers to come together to pass any not just stimulus but any sort of um, you know, investment-minded economic policy, which we've had a dearth of in this country for the past 15 years or so. Um, and then we, we also kind of explore the, the, the fiscal side of things during the Trump administration, um, because Trump had promised, as a campaign promise, uh, that he would take advantage of low rates to invest in infrastructure and create jobs and do all sorts of things given the accommodative conditions of monetary policy. Yet once he was in office, the fiscal policymakers did not come together to pass anything meaningful when it comes to, you know, job creating or or mm -hmm. uh, economic investment programs. Um, instead, that the marquee legislation of that administration was a tax cut. So I I would take issue with the caller's um, <laughs> comment there, but I I think we we got into that distinction. And when it comes to the term experiment and it being pejorative, I mean it, it was it, it's the they're raising rates right now. Um, this yes it's part of the same experiment it's it's an experiment these are experimental tools uh interest rates and monetary policy even central bankers will tell you this is a lot of science but it's also a lot of art well and also and, the scale of it is totally unprecedented yeah. I yes mean, it just, is uh, just it to is. back you up on this one a little Thank bit you. i mean it's an experiment yeah. because of the amount of money that was flushed through the system which you know, sure, Keynesianism was an experiment too. You know, I mean, yes. there are a yeah. lot of these mm -hmm. major economic policies are, are experiments. Yeah. Definitely. Anya, were you going to say something? Sorry. No, I just I, I I second all of that, and that I think that you know, with the part of what we were referring to um, as the experiment was the Fed using quantitative easing as a as a way to stimulate economic growth. Mm -hmm. That the rise and fall of interest rates is typical monetary policy, but there was really something new that began in the wake of the great financial crisis. We're talking about the new frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, which examines the Federal Reserve's role in the U.S. and global economies after the 2008 financial crisis to present. We're joined by Anya Borg, producer and writer on the film, and James Jacoby, director and producer. We're going to take a lot more of your calls and comments when we get back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new Frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money, which really looks at the Fed's role in our economy in this uh, post-2008 financial crisis world. Um, there's a great uh, a great cut from the film. The financial journalist Chris Leonard um, walks us through why the Fed has become so significant. I think one of the most important things to think about is that our democratic institutions in America are becoming less and less capable and less and less effective. I think that point is almost undeniable. So what we're doing in this country is we're relying on our non-democratic institutions to take up the burden, like the Central Bank and Economic Affairs, which leads you to the surreal place where we are today, where this committee of 12 people is making these decisions that could very well plunge our economy into a deep, deep, deep recession and cause financial crisis. So what I wanted to connect this to was we have a a comment from listener Tamar. Tamar writes, the Fed's target of 2% inflation is often mentioned in the news as a given. My understanding is that this is a philosophy rather than an absolute and that setting such a low inflation goal actually puts the economy on the backs of workers and doesn't allow for real wage increase. I think Canada has a higher inflation goal which allows for a different type of economy. Can you speak to the setting of the 2% inflation goal and what that implies about the Fed's economic philosophy and what other possibilities exist? I mean, what's fascinating about this is, I, I want, and I want you to answer Tamar's question, James, but it's also, we can't change the Fed's policy through any kind of democratic means. This is, their philosophy is the philosophy of a technocratic institution that's fundamentally beyond our democratic control. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, and uh, Tamar makes a great point as well. I mean, 2%, um, it's, it's something that's being debated right now a lot more because the Fed is obviously trying to get inflation down to its target of 2%. It's a relatively new target on it. I don't, I don't remember exactly when they set it, but I think it's within the past 15 years, maybe so. 2012 or something like that, that they, they basically came out and said, this, this is kind of where we're targeting inflation. Like a little bit of inflation is good, not too much. 2% sounds right. And I think central bankers around the world have you know different opinions, but kind of arrived around that number. Right now, there's really prominent economists, um, you know, even more sort of conservative-leaning economists who think that two percent is a bit arbitrary and that we should be tolerating higher inflation, a little bit higher inflation, so as not to one, you know, uh, bring about either mass, you know, big, big, big-time unemployment, which would probably have to happen if the Fed were serious about raising rates to get down to two percent inflation and or a financial accident uh, of which we're now seeing financial accidents happen. So there's massive consequences to the Fed's effort to get down to 2%. And there's really legitimate questions about whether 2% is the right target or not. And as you said, Alexis, it's so strange considering, you know, it is not a dem- one, it's not a mandate to be at 2%. It's not part of their charter. It's not part of their congressional mandate to get it to 2%. They've come up with that target. Um, and in fact, that for many, many years was a target for them to reach, not to bring down to. They wanted a little inflation. We had very low inflation in this country up until COVID, in part because we had limited, you know, or, or sort of middling economic demand and we didn't have enough inflation. We didn't have enough wage pressure kind of, um, you know, wealth in the middle class to be pushing wages up and and worker power is a part of that. There's lots of different factors that go into that. Um, but right now, 
I think that there's a, a really interesting, important debate to be had. It's just what's the Definitely. forum for that debate? <laughs> yeah. And it's just fascinating because I think the, the debate is really focusing in on that Fed policy probably has important ramifications for the share uh, of wealth that the working class takes. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I mean, to me, that's like been, it's one of the fascinating questions in your film. And it's one of the most fascinating questions in the world, basically, right now is how, how hot to run the economy so that working people uh, do better than they have since 2008. Um, let's, uh, let's bring in some more calls. Um, Paul in San Francisco, welcome. Yes, good morning, and uh, kudos to, to both of you. You've uh, made two fantastic episodes, and I hope that uh, in 50 or 100 years they'll be available on bookshelves when similar <laughs> situations come back. But uh, my, my questions and comments uh, surround Jay Powell, and uh, people, I think, underestimate Jay Powell before he came to the Fed was a deal lawyer on Wall Street who then moved to a uh, – prototypical shadow bank, Carlisle, the LBO shop, where he made most of his money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wonder, I mean, with that background, uh, you guys, through the course of making these episodes, have uh, approached his intersanctum. D- does he have what it takes to make tough decisions and to do uh, intelligent and correct things? Because uh, he's, he's certainly rolled over for Donald Trump four or five years ago under pressure, and uh, that background just doesn't seem like the ideal background to uh, to lead such an important role. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, Anya, want to take this one? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Jerome Powell is an, is an interesting figure. He's not an economist, which often the, the chairman of the central bank have been. He does come from the Carlyle Group and the kind of world of the financial world of, you know, deal-making. Um, he was in private equity. And um, one of the things that's interesting that people don't often know about uh, Chairman Powell is that when he first joined the Board of Governors in 2012, he was actually one of the people inside the Fed who was advocating to, um, you know, for unwinding quantitative easing and some of the kind of extraordinary monetary policies in that period. Um, at, at some point around 2014, 2015, he he switched. And I believe he was on the record at the time kind of saying, look, the data has has come in and it's not causing inflation. Um, so that showed a lot of flexibility on his part. But I've, I find it interesting that he kind of had that initial take on on some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're journalists, so I'm not going to opine on on whether or not Chairman Powell <laughs> has what it takes. Um, his character. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think. I think there's something to be said for uh, someone in the Fed understanding how the financial world really works. You know, one of the one of the folks that we interviewed, uh, Andrew Hazar, you played a clip from him earlier, mm-hmm. was a really kind of important character for us and that he was brought on to manage quantitative easing at the very beginning. He had worked at the Fed and he'd worked on Wall Street. Um, and his observations were that the Fed had these really well-intentioned policies. They were very well-intended people, but they don't really understand how finance works. And so when they push all of this money out into the banking system, they don't really get where it's actually going. And I thought I, I think that's a really interesting observation um, in light of the caller's question of, you know, I think that Chairman Powell 
knows where the money is going. Um, and I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I would say that's actually quite a generous explanation for that particular <laughs> phenomenon. Um, let's uh, let's bring in Meg in San Francisco. Hi. Um, well, thanks for taking my call. Um, I really appreciate the conversation here and uh, see it from a high level perspective as far as looking at these decisions that are being made from the top down. But my call is coming from a bit of a different perspective. Um, My question is about how do you think or could you speak to how this ties to the very real lived experiences of people who are just trying to get by during this time of inflation? Um, Because what when I hear this conversation, I'm thinking about how these companies that got these overinvestments or these risky investments have been able to pay their employees very high salaries. And those higher level earners in this economy, I wonder how that has also helped to fuel the other impacts that we're seeing with not being able to buy homes, not being Mm -hmm. able to buy cars, Mm -hmm. things that are impacting people in like um, a more local level, because it seems to disrupt not only the bigger picture as far as how we make these decisions, or how others are making these decisions for us if it's not being voted upon, and then how people are, like, impacted on their day-to-day. Meg, that was a brilliant comment. That That is exactly right. Um, um, James, do you want to, like, describe how you tried to show the way that something which seems very far away from us in this Federal Reserve monetary uh, policy and quantitative easing leads to exactly the kind of situations that Meg is talking about on the ground that making life more unequal and and difficult for some people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, you know, one of the side effects of this policy is is that it it really did um, intensify the wealth gap in this country, um, where we did see a huge amount of money being made by the very wealthy and by anyone who already owns assets in our society. So, you know, like the affordability crisis that a lot of us face in terms of, you know, can we afford to buy a home? Um, Yes, interest rates were low, but we saw prices go through the roof in all of our neighborhoods. That was very much driven by this policy and those who already owned homes or were able to buy homes and take advantage of this, um, you know, saw their wealth soar. Uh, but but you know it it, it for for those who couldn't um, you know we saw it, home prices go way up and affordability issues um, and you know in terms of inflation and I think it's still it, it's it I mean inflation is still high and prices of things are still high there's other factors that are driving it now um, but we you know it it's it's a terrible bind because um, you know. Th- the fact of the matter is a lot of these these policies were intended to actually help create jobs for the, the middle class in this country. And um, but that came with all these other consequences. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we were keen to do, you know, for instance, kind of talk to go on the ground somewhere where inflation was particularly acute. We went to Phoenix, Arizona, where it was really high. It still is very high. Um, and you realize that, you know, for for it. Inflation is a regressive tax. It does hit people with less means a lot more than everybody who does have means. And I think that um, it's something that a lot of people, especially in the policy arena, and a lot of commentators, certainly on Twitter, kind of forget about that. You know, this is it's inflation is a very problematic thing for people. And 
Um, and, you know, the Fed has been in this bind of saying, no, that's our mandate. Uh, we've got to do something about it. Um, but at the same time, the, the tool they have to use to do that is really threatens a lot of people's livelihoods. We're going to see, unfortunately, you know, even with rosy projections for them, you know, unemployment will will rise. And they are trying to basically slow down the jobs market and get companies to shed employees. And it's a very weird and perverse situation that we all find ourselves in. And it and the ramifications are very local, very, very local. It's it's jobs and it's affordability. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to look at, you know, what they were trying to do was essentially trying to drive up real wage growth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what's ended up happening is nominal wage growth has gone mm -hmm. up, but inflation has outpaced it. And so it's uh, been been very difficult for people, as, as we are hearing and have heard um, over the last year. Let's bring in uh, Eric uh, in Santa Clara. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. And along the lines of what you were just saying, I mean, I'm wondering if it goes beyond ideology to, you know, basic competence. I'll give you an example. You know, in this area, we saw this, you know, incredible increase in home prices. Mm -hmm. It was national news that real estate prices were going through the roof. There was a historic jump in real estate prices. And during this time, Jerome Powell and the Fed were specifically continuing to buy mortgage securities mm -hmm. to reduce the cost of mortgages and stimulate that demand, even as we had this historic run-up, you know, that made houses completely unaffordable to, to working people. So, you know, I mean, he could have easily adjusted that knob. And it's very hard to make the case that that would be in any way stimulative of uh, job growth either because, you know, the construction industry is longer term and knows that, you know, its conditions will change and they don't necessarily invest based on the prices of housing today, right? So I wonder if you could comment on, you know, do we have a basic competence issue here as well? Um. Who wants to take that one? I'll let James take that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what we what we have, and I think that the, is is clearly like extremes. You know, this is what happens when you you use these tools to, and this is what a lot of people that are, that we interviewed who were just like, you know, the Fed is supposed to really ensure stability and that there isn't that that much volatility, and when you blow bubbles, you know, asset bubbles, and when you drive the price of, of, of houses up very quickly. And as, as the caller said, that's, it's absolutely correlated. Low rates it means a hot housing market. That's just, it happens. And, and housing prices go up, and we've seen the effects of that over and over in this country. Um, these are policies that are, you know, tremendously powerful. And when, you know, I think what's interesting, and Anya, you, you, you know, let me know what you think about this, but a lot of the people that we spoke to that have been you know, insiders at the Fed and critical of these policies, like Tom Honig, the former president of the Kansas City Fed, he said, let's just be moderate. Like, wh why do we, you know, when we start to do all of this stimulus and all of these policies and we go full, full force into them, full throttle, you then, it then means that there will come a time when you have to dramatically pull back on them. And instead of it being sort of normalized and moderate and, and less volatile, um, it becomes these swings. And I think what the caller just is, is alluding to is the fact that these swings um, are painful and they can be fun on the upside and, and devastating on the downside. 
And the Fed has been loath to see itself as playing a big role in creating some of these swings. They, they kind of, yeah. they take responsibility for the boom times, but then when things go bust and they have to pull back the you know, proverbial punch bowl, they don't really necessarily take responsibility for what it what built happened? up in those times, the boom times. Let's get in one last cut from your documentary. This is going to be Rana Foruhar talking about the moment we're living through. So the markets were down 20% last year. That seems like a lot. And if we were in a normal market cycle, I'd say, okay, we're done. You know, we're probably at the bottom. I don't know if I can safely say that we're at the bottom because of what we're looking back at, this age of easy money, not just even since the financial crisis, but before that, you know, for the decades that rates have been going down and down and down and debt has been going up and up and up. That's a long period of time where assets have arguably been artificially inflated. And so is it possible that you could see a continued correction at some point? It is possible. Now, I'm personally not going out and selling my entire stock portfolio. I don't want to scare people. But I do want to say that I think we are in a once-in-a-lifetime financial transition. And I think that everybody needs to sort of strap in for that. And if you need your money in the next couple of years, I would be more cautious than not. Anya Borg, I mean, that is scary. That's a scary quote yeah. from Rana Forohar mm-hmm. from the Financial Times. Um, you get the last comment on the show. I mean, how should people be preparing? How should they be strapping in? Yeah, I mean, we we debated, you know, using using that that piece of sound from Rana, but she, you know, really I think was trying to be fair and saying, you know, that she. She wasn't sure, um, but it is a really uncertain and confusing time. And I think what she was trying to say when she said, "If you need your money in the next couple of years," is if you know people living on a fixed income um, need to be more cautious than not. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we've found it a, a confusing time to report on. And um, James, do you want to add anything to that? I mm-hmm. I think, you know. Well, I think we're going to run out of time here, and I want to be able to read you one listener's praise for the documentary. Listener writes, I watched this documentary a few nights ago and was very impressed. I read the financial press and work in a field ancillary to finance, but the big picture view of the documentary and the way it appropriately taps the fiscal, financial, and political atmospheres was really well done. That is the new Frontline documentary, Age of Easy Money. We've been joined by the filmmakers James Jacoby and Anya Borg. James, the director and producer of the film, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Anya, producer and writer of the film, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks to all of our callers and commenters as well. We really appreciate you joining in on this show. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.